Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. In a letter written in 1675, Isaac Newton famously said, If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Certainly, this sentiment is true in the practice of medicine. Modern care and procedures are often the products of brilliant minds that came before us. Today, we're going to look at world events and a physician that brought forth a new level of care and surgical procedures. We're going to roll back the clock to the early 20th century and the hellish days of World War I. There, we will find physician leadership of the highest order. History not only fascinates, it provides lessons to today's physician leaders. Let's begin. My guest today is Lindsay Fitzharris. Dr. Fitzharris is the author, medical historian, and television host. She holds a PhD in the history of science, medicine, and technology from the University of Oxford. Lindsay Fitzharris. Welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you about my new book. I am very excited about it. Let's let's jump right in. Who was Harold Gillies? So my book, The Facemaker, is about the pioneering surgeon Harold Gillies. You might know him or recognize his name as the father of modern plastic surgery. He was the pioneering surgeon who was rebuilding soldiers' faces during the First World War. And I like to tell people that this is a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to a society that was largely intolerant of facial differences. So what Gillies was able to do was not just restore these men's faces, but also their broken spirits. So it's an incredible, harrowing war story. So in The Facemaker, you obviously look at the start of aesthetics in in medicine. Why did you write the book? (laughs) You know, it's really funny because I'm just starting the publicity tour, and I know that this question was going to come up, and I haven't even totally prepared for it, but I'll give it a go. So I have a PhD in the history of science and medicine, as we established at the top, and I am a trained academic historian, but these days I like to call myself first and foremost a storyteller. Now, going into the face maker, I knew virtually nothing about World War I. I was starting from zero, which is probably why it took me five years to write the book in the end. Um, But I knew a little bit about Gillies and his patients. I had come across it um, through my own research, and I knew there was a really good story there. And I think that it's important, especially in this day and age when we see the return of old school warfare in Ukraine, for instance, that we talk about the medical implications of this kind of conflict on the bodies of the people participating in them. And of course, um, on, on the medical community itself, because a lot of advances are driven by these conflicts. In the facemaker, you quote a World War I nurse as saying, the science of healing stood baffled before the science of destroying. Mm. As a medical historian, do you believe advances in warfare directly lead to advancements in medicine? Clearly, in World War I, you have a lot of advances coming out, not just the emergence of modern plastic surgery and facial reconstruction, but in parallel, which I talk about in the facemaker, you also have advances in anesthesia. Um, So you have the development of intratracheal anesthesia, which we can discuss a little later on and why that comes about with Gillies. 
Um, you have uh, advances in blood transfusion. You have the first blood banks and empty shell casings in World War One. These are all incredible things that are happening, and they're driven by this absolute sheer need for these kinds of technologies. And I think that a lot of my readers are going to be drawn to that positive message because nobody wants to think we participated in this inhuman conflict and nothing good came of it. However, in the midst of my research, I came to the grim realization that these advances, as wonderful as they continue to serve us today, they actually prolonged the war in many instances because as doctors and nurses became better at patching these men up, they were being sent back to the front, they were feeding the war machine, and it was just a vicious cycle. Um, and this was certainly a frustration for Harold Gillies himself, because he would work for sometimes years on these men's faces, and then he'd have to send them right back out to the front. And in some cases, his patients ended up dying from totally different unrelated wounds later in the war. You mentioned this this earlier, but I found it really fascinating in the Facemaker uh, that you argue that all battlefield injuries were not viewed the same by the, the general public. Uh, mm. An amputated leg might elicit sympathy and respect and a damaged face often caused yeah. feelings of revulsion or disgust. What, why do you think that was? You know, I think also I, I worked with a disability activist um, as well who read the manuscript and checked the language. And we had a lot of discussions about, for instance, the term disfigured, which might not be used by the disability community today. But the feeling was that these men were disfigured to the society that they were living in. And I would also, although I'm not a spokesperson for the disability community today, I would argue that some of the biases that we see in 1917 are alive and well today. You just have to look at Hollywood to know this is true because a lot of villains are disfigured. You know, you have Darth Vader, you have Voldemort, you have Blofeld, you have, um, I mean, there's so many, there's Harvey Dent. In fact, Harvey Dent in Batman becomes evil after he's disfigured. He's a good guy. And then he becomes evil after he's burned. So Joker, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, so I think these biases are would be familiar to people today as they were uh, familiar to people in 1917. Certainly disfigurement was viewed as the worst of the worst wound. It was one of the few wounds in World War I that warranted a full pension, which is interesting because if you're disfigured, you could arguably continue to work. Um, it might not affect your ability to, to work or to interact uh, in society, but it was psychologically viewed as one of the worst wounds that a, a soldier can endure. So, you know, Gillies is sort of a product of this facial bias as well, because he's going far beyond restoring function to look at the aesthetics of the face and to restore the face to a standard that that, that society deemed acceptable. And a lot of these men, they face so much isolation and prejudice. You know, there's stories of men whose fiancés broke off their engagements because of their wounds. Um, so it, some of these men went on to live in isolation. They never really recovered from uh, the injuries. But there is hope in the face maker. And, and a lot of that comes through Harold Gillies himself. And was this this true? And I know it may be beyond the scope of, of your book, but was it was it also true in, in Germany, France? the same type of public reaction to uh, facial injuries? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, again, in World War I, the injuries were so horrific. So in Germany, before World War I, there is this idea of the noble scar. And I touch mm. upon this a little bit in The Facemaker. Um, and in fact, people would, men would um, deliberately scar themselves. And it had something to do with saber fighting and 
it was entrenched in this belief that, you know, if you were of a, of a certain class, you, you might be challenged to a duel. So you want a dual scar. So there was this sort of more acceptance, I think, around um, scarring, certainly in Germany. But of course, the kinds of wounds that men are experiencing in World War I are extremely disfiguring. We're talking about faces without jaws or noses. I do include photos in the book. I don't know if that you had an opportunity to see the photos because they weren't integrated into the galleys. Um, but if you didn't, I'll, I'll definitely send you um, the photos and they are in the final copies of the book. So anybody picking up the face maker will be able to see these men. A lot of these men were forced to sit on blue benches uh, when they left the grounds of the hospital in Britain because that signified to the public not to look at them. And so I felt it was very important not to put these men on the metaphorical blue bench in 2022. So I think it's really important that we look at their faces today. As you know, this is the podcast uh, of the American Association for Physician Leadership. Our audience today is largely comprised of physician leaders and healthcare executives. I'm interested in what made Dr. Gillies uh, such a leader in his field of medicine. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Harold Gillies, so he went into the war as an ENT specialist. Uh, plastic surgery as such didn't exist as a discipline itself. It's really born out of World War I. Um, plastic surgery did predate World War I, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't a discipline that you would be trained in. Um, and attempts in earlier periods to reconstruct or alter the face tended to focus on very small areas of the face, such as the nose, rhinoplasty being a very ancient method in medical history. You get a little bit of facial reconstruction during the American Civil War. Um, there's a surgeon named Gordon Buck who tries to address some of the injuries in the Civil War. But again, there were fewer than 40 operations in total during that conflict. So World War I, you have 280,000 men requiring facial reconstruction. So it's, it's at a much bigger scale. And because of that, it allows someone like Gillies to try and test new methods and for these to become standardized and part of the plastic surgery canon. I think one of, you know, when I look back as a medical historian at various figures, my first book, The Butchering Art, was about a man named Joseph Lister, um, who brought germ theory to medical practice in the 19th century. It's about the right person at the right time. Lister was the right person because he had been, at, he had a Quaker background and he had been trained in science. And so he was able to understand Louis Pasteur's germ theory when he read about it. Um, and Harold Gillies is the right person. He's very creative, uh, which can be unusual for, for someone in medicine. Um, he's, so he's sort of right and left brain. He's a, he's a very competent artist himself. Um, he's a great sportsman. He's very well-rounded in that sense. And he takes a very different approach to surgeons in France and Germany who are also working on this problem of facial reconstruction. He collaborates with all kinds of technicians. So he brings in dental surgeons, um, which there's a lot of surgeons in World War I who consider dentists to be inferior and they won't work with them. Dental surgeons are hugely important, as you can imagine, to facial reconstruction. So he brings in dental surgeons. He brings in artists who create pictorial records of what he's doing because he recognizes that this is going to be important for moving plastic surgery forward. Um, X-ray technicians, I mean, you name it, they were all working together to rebuild faces. Ultimately, he establishes his own hospital in Sidcup in Britain, 
and he brings together all the all the people working on plastic surgery um, and on facial reconstruction during the war for the allies all end up working at SIDCUP. And this is great because surgeons are very competitive. So the, you know, the standards kind of rise across the board because they're all looking at each other's work and they want to outdo each other. They're learning from each other. And again, it's that creative hub that he creates that I think was really uh, progressive and forward thinking for his time. You mentioned the butchering art, which won a number of, justifiably won a number of awards as a fabulous uh, book in its own right. Um, and it, it covers Joseph Lister. C could you compare and contrast Dr. Lister and Dr. Gilly's leadership styles for us? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Lister, you know, it was funny because the butchering art focuses on Joseph Lister. And I would say that that book is, is really solely about Lister, whereas the face maker is about Harold Gillies, but it's about his patients as well. And so I really made an effort to bring their voices into that narrative. In fact, when the reader picks up the face maker, the first thing that happens is they're dropped right into the trench with a man named Percy Clare who gets hit in the face because I wanted readers to understand how difficult it was to get off that field and to get to the medical help that they needed. Um, so it's it's a different book in that sense. There's a lot more voices in the face maker. Um, even the cover kind of reflects this. It's it's a surgeon surgeon's hand holding a scalpel and in the reflection is a banded soldier. So this is not just a story about one man, but about many men. Um, there their styles were very different too. Lister was a real challenge because he was quite boring actually as a person. He was a Quaker and he was very kind of straight laced. Um, and so you didn't get much of a personality from Lister, which I think actually served him well because Lister was breaking a paradigm. He was he was leading a revolution. He had to convince surgeons to wash their hands. He had to convince them that there were these tiny little creatures that were killing their patients and they were called germs. And the reason why they didn't know about them was because they weren't using the microscope and they couldn't see them. And that was a huge leap of faith at that time. So I think the fact that he was so straight laced and he, he almost created a, a sort of religion around it. Like the people who followed him were known as the Listerians and they, they were very solemn and they, they took everything very seriously. And there was a real kind of um, ritual around washing your hands and in asepsis in the operating theater. Now, Gillies, he's not really breaking any paradigms. So what he's doing is sort of evolutionary because it's it's being born out of a huge need that is World War One. But he is essentially creating a new discipline, which is plastic surgery. And after the war, he had to really champion plastic surgery as a discipline because suddenly you don't have this kind of need because the war is over. So how do you flourish in plastic surgery? But it's more evolutionary. Um, and he's a real character. You know, I think one of the best things about Gillies was he was this prankster. Um, he was always pulling pranks on everybody. He had this alternative persona that he called, he called himself Dr. Scroggy. And so at his hospital, the men weren't allowed to drink or to gamble. But if Dr. Scroggy came in in his little costume, then he would bring champagne and he would gamble with the guys. And, and he really formed a bond with these patients because again, he's not a trauma surgeon working at the front. He's, he's literally working with these men over a course of several years, even possibly beyond a decade. So his attitude really served him well because he had such a heavy burden. And so I loved learning more about, you know, his kind of jokester personality and, and how he just dealt with the, the terribleness, the ghastliness of the First World War. And I, and I think that's a form of leadership. I would agree. Now, you brought up just briefly uh, Percy Clare, mm -hmm. starting, starting the, the book, The Facemaker. And Claire is not 
initially treated by Dr. Gillies. He's uh, seen it. Uh, Frensham is I'm yes, that Frensham, Hill, yeah. Frensham Hills um, Hospital uh, before he's transferred to to Queens Hospital in mm -hmm. Sidcup. Can you compare these two hospitals for me? Yeah. So um, like I, I said, going into this book, I didn't know much about Gillies. I knew I wanted to drop people into the action. And Percy Clare gave me an excellent opportunity because he wrote this very extensive diary about getting hit in the face and his wounds. And um, one of the challenges with Percy Clare was that he was, he was injured in 1917. So the prologue opens with this dramatic scene of him getting wounded and having to convince the stretcher bearers to take him off the field because facial wounds are very vascular. I'm, I, I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure, with listeners here. Um, so it could be really difficult to convince these stretcher bearers to take you off the field. They just assumed you would die. I had to then dial the clock back um, to right before the war. So we see Gillies and his background and him getting into the story. So Percy Clare uh, appears later. So the challenges for a man getting hit in the face was not only just getting off the field. Um, it was not choking to death because if you fell onto your back, you might uh, choke on your blood or your tongue might slip back into the back of your throat. So there was all kinds of physical challenge for getting off. The other challenge was you had to find your way to Gillies Hospital and the evacuation chain was very complicated. And Gillies wasn't necessarily known to everybody along that evacuation chain. In fact, early in the war, he created handwritten labels. He sent it to the front so that they could pin it onto these men with facial injuries so that he, he was sure that these men would be sent back to his specialty unit or back to the specialty hospital. Um, of course, these men couldn't talk either in most cases. So um, Percy Clare gets sent to the wrong hospital, which is a real tragedy for him because that hospital wasn't equipped at all to handle this kind of injury. In fact, the food they were giving him, he couldn't even chew. Um, you know, so these were the, the, just the, the challenge of keeping these men alive was enormous. And when you're thinking about reconstructing a face, it's different than a prosthetic limb, for instance, that doesn't have to necessarily look like the arm or the leg it's replacing in World War I, but a face is different. You know, the face has to not only function as a face, but it has to look like a face. And these are still the challenges that any reconstructive surgeon is facing today. Um, so he really had to get into Gilly's care um, to to get the right kind of specialty help. So it's a frustrating journey. I don't want to give away too much about Percy Clare's story because I feel like he's one of the beating hearts of it. But yeah, you do see him sort of periodically throughout this book. And it's it can be very frustrating to see, you know, how it plays out. And he doesn't necessarily give the Disney ending that people might want. And I thought that was also interesting and important because, of course, a lot of these soldiers didn't have the happiest of endings. Um, and the other challenge was actually some people might be interested to hear this. In the UK, we have a lot of complicated laws around patient records, which you, you of course have in the US. Um, and it was really difficult to get access to these patient records, even though it's World War One. I had to, in some cases, prove that these men were dead, which would have been crazy. Can you imagine if I like, <laughs> oh, he's 145 years old and he's still living in, in the south of England. Um, so it was really complex. It was definitely different from the butchering art where the 19th century was so far long ago that there wasn't really any kind of uh, problems accessing patient records or medical records from that period. 
So it's not just HIPAA here in the U.S. that uh, can cause difficulties for people with patients. Yeah, problems. it's it's really comp. Actually, I think we have more complicated laws too about human remains. So you know, in the U.S., you have great museums like the Mütter Museum, which I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of. Um, but I I think, and I I can't speak with expertise. I'm not a curator of these collections, but I think that they actually have stricter laws around those kinds of collections over here. They have to be of a certain date. Uh, the specimen has to be of a certain date. The name can't be on display. Um, so we have great medical anatomical collections over here, but they are, uh, they have a lot stricter guidelines around the display of those human remains. Well, it's interesting because as we mentioned, you, you hold a, a PhD in medical history from Oxford University. Can you tell me a little bit about the field of medical history and does the field have lessons for uh, present day practitioners? Well, that's a good question. So yeah, I, I did um, a master's and a PhD at Oxford University in the history of science, medicine, and technology. But usually what happens is you kind of go into one specialty. So you might be a historian of science or you might be a historian of medicine. Believe it or not, they are considered separate. Um, so I went in the, in the medical direction. My PhD was in alchemical medicine in the 17th century. I have no practical skills. I, I said there was going to be no practical advice <laughs> dished out during this podcast. Um, and then eventually I, I did a postdoc through the Wellcome Institute, which people might know through GlaxoSmith Pharmaceuticals. So in the UK, because of the Wellcome, it's named after Henry Wellcome, who in the 19th century um, cr created the pharmaceutical company, which became GlaxoSmith. And he, I guess in his, his trust, he um, left off some money for medical history. So the UK is in a really good place because we have quite a bit of funding for this kind of research and we have great collections as well here. So it's kind of, if there's any aspiring medical historians out there, definitely the UK is the place to, to study it. Um, and everybody specializes when you do your PhD, I always tell people, I know very, I know a lot about very little <laughs> in the past. Uh, so I was an early modernist. Mine, mine went back to the 17th century, but there are medical historians who go all the way up to today. And I think in the U S as well, a lot of medical historians end up teaching universities and actually teaching medical students. It's part of the medical program. And I think that's great. I think medical students should be exposed to, you know, the history of their, uh, discipline. And I always told people with the butchering art that I, I hoped that when they read it, they would realize that what we know today is not what we're going to know tomorrow. And that we need to be open-minded to those changes because Lister comes around with germ theory. Nobody believes him and there's a real pushback. And so, you know, I hope that it prompts people within the science and medical communities to think about what might be the thing that receives pushback today. Well, certainly we we stand on the uh, shoulders of, of giants, don't we, uh, yeah. in pre present, uh, present times. Let's get back to Dr. Uh, Gillies. And, and I don't want you to give away too much of the book, but following the war, what, what becomes of, of the good doctor? Yeah, so this is actually so so because I write narrative nonfiction, I should explain to people I, it reads like a novel, even though it's 100% true. So the the real beating heart of the story is World War One. But in the epilogue, I do deal with his post war career. And of course, for a lot of these soldiers, the war wasn't over when the when the war ended, of course, like they had all these injuries that had to be dealt with. So Gillies continues to operate on the disfigured soldiers of World War One, he ends up uh, moving into cosmetic realm as well. Um, 
I always remind lay people that plastic surgery, if you think about it as a heading and then underneath you have reconstructive surgery and cosmetic surgery, and they continue to be a very important, both continue to be very important parts of plastic surgery. Um, so he did move into the cosmetic realm and he, and there's some great stories in the epilogue. You know, there was a husband who came in with a gun waving it at Gillies saying he was going to kill him because he felt that Gillies had ruined his, his wife's face. What had happened was his wife had gone to, you know, a backstreet clinician who had injected paraffin wax into her face, like almost like a rudimentary filler and it got all lumpy and it began to migrate. And so they went to Gillies to fix it and he had never done anything like that before. So of course it was going to look worse before it looked better. And, and so Gillies kind of got into all these like weird situations, but his sense of humor helped him, you know, navigate that complicated field. So he moves into the to cosmetic realm. He continues to do reconstructive surgery. Of course, world war two comes about, um, he introduces his cousin, Archibald McIndoe, to the strange new art of plastic surgery. And McIndoe ends up founding, essentially, the guinea pig club, which people might be familiar with, which were the burned pilots of World War II. They became very famous. Um, and and he, did a, he worked on a lot of these burned victims, these pilots. So Gillies continues to work through that. And in 1949, he performs the first ever phalloplasty on a trans man named Michael Dillon. Uh, Michael Dillon had approached him about doing the surgery. Gillies went to great lengths to protect his identity. The British press did find out eventually, and Michael Dillon was unfortunately outed. And he, there was such a, a media frenzy in Britain that Michael Dillon actually ended up leaving Britain. And I said in the book that there weren't many people who would have viewed in 1949 Michael Dillon as a man, but Gillies wasn't one of him because he really stood behind Michael Dillon. Um, and he and also he rose to that surgical challenge. So if you can imagine the first successful phalloplasty in 1949, that's a huge advance as well. The book is The Face Maker. It is an absolutely fascinating read. I highly recommend it. Dr. Fitzharris, thank you so much for your time and joining thank us you. on Sound Practice. Thank you. My thanks to Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. Her new book is The Face Maker a visionary surgeon's battle to mend the disfigured soldiers of World War I. I highly recommend this book. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org.